Good afternoon again. Please join me in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for the gift of your word. Uh, that, Father, that your people at one time heard your word and, and responded. And, Father, that you use your word to awaken our hearts. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that again, that you would enliven us. Father, that your word would convict us. And, Father, that your word would lead us into, or your spirit by your word would lead us into all truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. But nominal Christianity, or to, to be a nominal Christian, is to be a Christian in name only. Uh, that's what the word nominal means. It means in name only. Uh, so to be a nominal Christian is to call yourself a Christian, but to have no true saving faith in Jesus Christ. So I come from an area of the United States that has often been referred to as the Bible Belt. Uh, because Christianity has historically been a, a large part of the culture. Uh, most people, uh, especially in past years, not as much anymore, have regularly attended church. It's just been a, a big part of who the people are. Now, this is, is really good in one sense, but the problem it has come with over time is that many people simply think of themselves as Christians without really having any true understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Oh, it seems like everyone around them is a Christian, so they just think, oh, I'm a Christian because everyone around me is. You know, these individuals who we might call nominal Christians, they're, they're not trying to trick anyone. They're not trying to deceive anyone. They, they think they truly are Christians. They just don't actually have an understanding of what it means to be a Christian. So in an article he wrote, a pastor by the name of Tabiti Armobile, he gave several reasons why nominal Christianity exists. It's not something that's unique to the Bible Belt. And so one of these reasons, he said, is that people simply think they're Christians because their family has historically been Christian, or they come from a, a Christian country or, or area. So this is kind of what I was talking about. I'm from the Bible Belt. Of course I'm a Christian. Or I'm from this area of Uganda or, or Kenya, so of course I'm a Christian. If it's not that, maybe people think they're Christians because they know they don't practice another religion. I know I'm not Hindu or, or Muslim or, or Buddhist, so, so therefore that, that makes me a Christian. Maybe they, they think they're a Christian because they, they regularly attend church or they're, they're generally a good person. And that seems to be what Christians do, so, so naturally that, that makes me a Christian. Or maybe another reason is, uh, at one time, uh, I, I prayed a, a prayer, I perhaps walked down an aisle in church, maybe even as a child I was, I was baptized. So since I took part in one of these Christian rituals, yeah, well, this must make me a Christian. I was baptized when I was seven years old. Of course I'm a Christian. Well, the problem is that none of those things by themselves makes someone a Christian. As, as Pastor Tabidi goes on to write, being a Christian is not being a good person. It's being a new creation with a new heart and a new mind created by the Spirit of God. Being a Christian has little to nothing to do with which family you come from. It's a matter of belonging to God's family. And it only happens when God opens your eyes to the truth of the gospel and, and you respond in repentance and faith. Well, to 
to correct nominal Christianity. I think nominal Christianity, to somebody to believe they're a Christian and not be a Christian, is a problem. To correct that, it's important to clarify what it actually means to be a Christian and to clarify what true faith in Jesus Christ looks like. That's exactly what Jesus does in our, our text for today. So you can turn with me to Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. Luke 8, 1 through 21. And so I just remember the context of Jesus' ministry as, as we go to these verses. Jesus was ministering among people who thought of themselves as God's people or children of Abraham simply because they were born Israelites. That is the, the group of people that Jesus is largely ministering to. But Jesus in this text clarifies what it means to truly believe in him and to, to truly be a child of God, to, to truly be a son of Abraham. I have four points for you to consider as we walk through this text this afternoon. The first is parable preparation. So Jesus is going to be largely teaching through a parable. So parable preparation, parable purpose. Parable explanation and parable applications. Parable preparation, purpose, explanation, and application. And I think that the main idea that, that we get from this text is that true faith, true faith listens, obeys, and endures. And true faith listens, obeys, and endures. Uh, so look with me starting in verse 1 as we look at parable preparation. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Afterward, he, Jesus, was traveling from one town and village to another, preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, called Magdalene, seven demons had come out of her. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, Susanna, and many others who were supporting them from their possessions. As a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from every town, he said in a, a parable. Uh, well, we'll get to the parable in a moment, but here Luke provides something of a, a summary of Jesus' ministry. Uh, Jesus is, is traveling around from town to town. He is preaching and teaching the people that he encounters as he goes. And Jesus is not alone in these travels. It actually appears that a, a fairly diverse group of people is following Jesus on his travels. There's the 12 disciples, there's a number of, of women, and several others. It includes both rich and poor. Uh, Luke actually seems to highlight the, the role of the women who were following Jesus here. Uh, women had already and would continue to play an important role in Jesus' ministry. Of course, he was born to Mary. We've seen Anna the prophetess in Luke so far. Uh, in Luke's gospel particularly, he's going to highlight the, the role of the women who were present at the crucifixion and who were the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. Of course, women, as Luke would go on to write in Acts, play an important role in the early church. And so in contrast to many Perhaps not most in his day, Jesus placed a great value on the roles and contributions of women in the kingdom of God. And it seems, it seems that these women that are highlighted in this text particularly, they were supporting Jesus' ministry financially. Uh, so, so Luke mentions Joanna, who was the, the wife of Herod's steward. Herod was the, the governor, the Roman-appointed governor of that region. Uh, so Joanna would have likely been a woman of some wealth. Uh, some means. You know, Jesus himself, during his time on earth, was not wealthy. 
And at least part of the reason he was able to, to travel around and preach and, and teach and, and heal and, and just conduct his ministry, it seems to be the financial support of, of these women and I presume some other followers over time. This is not a, a central idea of the text, so I don't want to dwell on it, but I think church, this should tell you that's a good thing to financially support gospel ministry. First Corinthians 9.14, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. And Jesus was able to minister full-time in, in the way that he did because of the generosity of those like Joanna. It's a good thing when, when churches support those who minister the gospel to them and who take the gospel to the nations. I think it is a good thing that here this church has been a long-term supporter of Brother Summer who who is planted and preaches regularly at Emmanuel Church of Pakistan. Uh, in many ways, the support of this church has, has freed him up to minister to the people of that nation. And we also just have a, a beautiful picture, though. This is not a church that we see pictured here, just in some ways a beautiful picture of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is many members who have been given different gifts, and yet one cannot save the other. They have no need of the other. We have Jesus preaching and teaching, and certainly Jesus needs nothing from any of us, but Jesus preaching and teaching, many others traveling with him, financially supporting him and allowing this ministry to progress. It's a, it's a beautiful picture here of what we see in these first few verses. Uh, but the, the, the last thing I want to draw your attention to from these first four verses is that a, a distinction is being drawn, I think, between the crowds that are mentioned in verse 4, this large crowd that was gathering and coming to Jesus from every town, and these individuals that Luke singles out in the first three verses, the, the 12 disciples, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, the others. Well, these Individuals that are mentioned in these first three verses seem to be people who stick with Jesus. They travel with Jesus. They supported him financially. They're examples of true faith, true followers, true disciples of Jesus Christ. Uh, we don't see it explicitly in these verses, but just taking the Gospels into account, just reading the description of the crowds that is so often given in the Gospel. Uh, often the crowds seem to be those who simply gather for a time and go their way. Now, I, I certainly don't think it is a requirement to be a disciple of Jesus that, that you had to be traveling with Jesus from town to town. Uh, actually, next week we're going we're gonna to encounter a man who wanted to follow Jesus from town to town. And Jesus says, no, 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 you stay where you are and you tell others about me here. But I think Jesus highlights the devotion of these individuals to draw a contrast with the crowds who seem to have much less devotion to him. And I think also to set the stage for the parable that follows. To set the stage for the parable that follows. And that brings us to the, the purpose of the parable. So I'm going to read starting in uh, the second half of verse 4 all the way through verse 10. So the second point of the sermon, the purpose of the parable. So Jesus said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. As he sowed, some seed fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds of the sky devoured it. Other seed fell on the rock. When it grew up, it withered away since it lacked moisture. Other seed fell among thorns. The thorns grew up with it and choked it. 
Still other seed fell on good ground. When it grew up, it produced fruit, a hundred times what was sown. As he said this, he called out, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. Then his disciples asked him, What does this parable mean? So he said, The secrets of the kingdom of God have been given for you to know. But to the rest it is in parables, so that looking they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. I'm going to hold off on on talking about the meaning of the parable for a moment until Jesus himself gives us the meaning of the parable. And so what I want to to draw your attention to really are verses 9 and 10 here. When Jesus finishes with uh, this parable, the disciples come to Jesus asking, well, what in the world does this mean? What are you talking about? You might be wondering the same thing yourself. But before Jesus tells the disciples what it means, before he gives them an answer, he tells them the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given for you to know. And Jesus is speaking of the, the secrets of the kingdom of God. What he means is that the, the kingdom of God has drawn near in Jesus Christ. The, the mystery is how God's plan of redemption has been revealed in Jesus Christ. In other words, that the king is here, the king is here, and he has not come to establish an earthly kingdom like like many who were there, many among the Jewish people thought. No, he had come to invite people into his heavenly kingdom. Jesus is also saying here that, that understanding, that an understanding of these truths, what it meant to be a child of God, what it meant to be part of the kingdom of God, Well, it is a gift of God to have that understanding. It is God himself who grants understanding. It is God who revealed the secrets of the kingdom of heaven to the disciples. A full knowledge of Jesus, an understanding of his saving purposes, is a gift of God. This type of understanding is is more than simply an intellectual understanding. It it certainly includes some sort of an intellectual understanding of the gospel. But it also includes believing the message, receiving the message by faith. It includes hearing and obeying that message. But after after telling the disciples this, after telling them that the, the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given for you to know, Jesus goes on to say, but to the rest, it is in parables, so that looking they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. What is Jesus saying here? As as difficult of a teaching as it is, I think what he's saying is, is like parents sometimes communicate through looks and glances across the table, Or perhaps even speak in code so that their children do not know what they are saying. Jesus spoke in parables so that some people may not understand. As the theologian D.A. Carson put it, at least one of the functions of parables is to conceal the truth, or at least to present it in a veiled way. At least one of the functions of parables is to conceal the truth, or at least to present it in a veiled way. So in this this statement that Jesus gives, he's actually quoting from Isaiah 6, which which Justin just read from us, Isaiah 6, 9, 
Well, God tells the prophet Isaiah that the people of Israel will not respond to his ministry. Isaiah is told to preach to the nation of Israel, though the nation of Israel will not listen to him. They will not listen to him because their hearts are hardened towards the Lord. The Lord will use the words of Isaiah to further harden their hearts. And they will not listen because God has not given them ears to hear. Isaiah's words brought judgment, not repentance, because the people didn't listen. The failure to turn and repent eventually led to their exile. Well, as Isaiah's words brought judgment, so will Jesus' words. And not for all, Jesus' words are messages of hope and salvation, but also a message of, of judgment. They will be words of judgment for those who will not listen. For those who, who did not listen and understand Jesus' words, their lack of understanding is a reflection of their hearts. It's a reflection of their hearts that are, are hardened towards the Lord. As, as one commentator put it, Jesus teaches in parables both to reveal the truth to those who are receptive, to reveal the truth to those who are receptive, and to conceal it from those whose hearts are hardened. God's word reveals your hearts. Now look, I'm 100% certain that every single person in this room has read something in the Bible or heard something in a sermon that you have not understood. You have read something in the Bible or you have heard something that you had questions about. Now, you may often find that you have trouble understanding something that it is in the Bible. Uh, not everything is as straightforward as a command like, love your enemies. Look, I want to be clear. This does not mean that you have a hard heart or that God has not given you understanding. And you should notice from our text that it is the disciples themselves who come to Jesus and have to ask him what this parable means. Jesus' disciples, these people that Luke highlights as those who are traveling with Jesus from town to town, they're the ones who come and ask. They do not understand the parable. And it is not the only time in Jesus' ministry that they do not understand. And they basically never understand when Jesus is talking about his death. And they totally miss the fact that he would die and have to be raised again. So that the, the test of true faith is not whether you understand everything in God's word. Now, Christian, I, I, I do want to encourage you that you have been given the spirit of God. If you are a Christian, you have been given the Spirit of God, and one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to give understanding, is to help you understand the Scriptures. So you should pray before you read the Bible that God would help you understand. Even if you might not understand everything, the Bible can be understood. The Bible is not some mystery that is just unlocked for a few. You do not have to have a pastor to help you understand the words of the Bible. The Bible can be understood. You have God's Spirit. But true faith is not revealed by whether you understand everything right away. The true faith is revealed by your attitude towards God and His Word. And Jesus is concerned with your heart. He is concerned with your desire to understand. He is concerned with, with whether you will take him at his word. Now, any of you who are teachers, any of you who teach young people, you know that the best students are the ones who ask questions. 
The best students are not necessarily the ones who understand everything right away and just seem to get everything. I mean, those people probably do pretty well too. But they're, they're the best students are the students who are willing to ask for more explanation. They want to, to understand what is being taught. They are interested in what is being taught. Uh, poor students or, or bad students, on the other hand, are, are the ones who just sit there and, and have really no desire to know. They have no interest in the subject matter that is being taught. Uh, so good students and bad students have a different attitude toward learning, and they have a, a different attitude towards their teachers. I think we see in, in this text that the disciples were good students. They came to Jesus seeking understanding. They wanted to understand what he was teaching. And friends, Jesus cares about your heart. So if, if you were to be a good student of God's word, your desire must be to know God's word. When you do not understand something, do you want to find the explanation to it? Are you interested in, in learning the deeper truths of God's Word? Do you ever ask others to help you understand God's Word? Do you keep reading God's Word, even maybe when you don't understand everything, so that you will grow in your knowledge and understanding? And one of the best things you can do to grow in your knowledge is simply to read the Bible, to know more of the Bible. But your attitude towards God's word is not always reflected in, in what you do when you do not understand. It can also be reflected in your attitude when you do understand what is written. Um, Christians should approach the Bible as God's word, which means that they should approach the Bible ready, eager, and willing to obey. So brothers and sisters, simply what is, your, what is your attitude when you come across a, a passage of scripture or a difficult teaching in the Bible or something that, that points out something in your life that needs to change? Or do you want to simply ignore it or pretend it, it's not that important as you, uh, instead of seeking to obey and seeking to ask, well, how might my life need to change? Well, those to whom the secrets of the kingdom of God have been revealed are those who are like the disciples. They're eager to hear from God's word. They are eager to understand it. They're eager to obey it. Those who, who do not listen and who do not understand are, are those whose hearts are, are hardened towards God. They do not desire to hear and understand. But true faith listens. And true faith seeks understanding. That brings us to the, the explanation of the parable itself. Uh, so look with me starting in verse 11. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. The seed along the path are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the seed on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. Having no root, these believe for a while and fall away in a time of testing. As for the seed that fell among thorns, these are the ones who, when they have heard, go on their way and are choked with worries, riches, and pleasures of life, and produce no mature fruit. But the seed in the good ground, these are the ones who, having heard the word with an honest and good heart, hold on to it, and by enduring, produce fruit. 
explanation of the parable here is pretty straightforward. The seed is the word of God, therefore the sower is the one who is spreading the word of God. So this is what Jesus was doing as he traveled from town to town preaching. It's what preachers and teachers do when they preach and teach. It's what all Christians do as they share the gospel. They are spreading the seed of God's word. But what happens to that seed? What happens to the word of God as it is taught and shared is a result of the type of soil where it lands. In other words, what happens to the word of God that is shared depends on the heart condition of the one who hears. And Jesus gives four types of soil or, or four types of heart conditions in this parable. And you should notice that it is only the final one. It's only the last one that is good soil. Only one of these four are true Christians or have true faith. God's word reveals your heart. So we see soil number one in, in verse 12. The seed along the path are those who have heard, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Now, this is really just a picture of those who never really consider the word of God. They immediately reject the message of the gospel. It does not penetrate the soil. It just sits on the surface. It does not penetrate their hearts, but it is immediately snatched away. I think this is really the response to the gospel that we see many in this country have, many who follow the majority religion of this country. They do not give the gospel a, a second thought, though we pray that they would, but they do not give the gospel a second thought because it contradicts what they've been taught their whole life. It would mean rejecting their whole culture. So for many, it is not even a matter worthy of consideration. I think this is the response that we see of many of the Pharisees to Jesus. They would have to give up their self-righteousness, their, their social position, really even what they've been teaching to follow Jesus. And so uh, from the start, that they are a people who are opposed to Jesus. They are not a people who are ready and willing to listen and consider Jesus, but they immediately reject him. The second type of soil we see there in verse 13, and the seed on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. Having no root, these believe for a while and fall away in a time of testing. Have any of you ever left a job you hated for a new job? You, you left a job you hated for a new job, or maybe you just daydreamed of leaving a job you hated for a new job. Well, if you have ever left a job you hated for a, a new job, my guess is that your attitude towards your new job is that you were really excited. You were really looking forward to it. Perhaps you thought, oh man, life is going to be so much better now. I'm like out of that other job and I'm into this new job. All the problems of that old job are simply going to go away. Uh, so you begin your, your new job with a lot of enthusiasm, with a great attitude. But after a while realize that your new job has challenges too. It's the reality of, of work in a fallen world. Uh, it is not as great, maybe, as you thought it was. Hey, maybe even if it's better than that old job, you get a couple years in and you kind of forget how bad that old job is and just focus on the problems of the new job. And so what, what happens over time is that your attitude changes. Your enthusiasm vanishes. That's really a picture of this, this second soil. 
At first, the, these people with, with this second soil, when they hear the word of God, they seem to accept it with joy. They appear to have faith. And maybe they think that Christianity is going to be the solution to all of their problems. Maybe they think their temptation towards sin is going to just vanish. Maybe they've been deceived by the prosperity gospel and believe that followers of Jesus are those who are going to receive material rewards. So what happens when those material rewards do not come? What happens when their problems do not go away? What happens when instead of health or wealth, they undergo trials or maybe even persecuted for their faith? Their initial enthusiasm vanishes. Their faith vanishes because it was not built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Their faith is short-lived, and that is because it was no true faith at all. And this was largely the attitudes of the crowds who came and listened to Jesus. They wanted to, to see miracles. They wanted to be fed. But they would not accept the difficult teachings of Jesus or the cost of discipleship. And so, eventually, they fade away. See that the third type of soil there in verse 14. As for the seed that fell among thorns, these are the ones who, when they have heard, go on their way and are choked with worries, riches, and pleasures of life and produce no mature fruit. Again, the, the, the people in this group, they look like Christians for a time. They appear to have true faith, but then they, the cares of the world choke it out. Maybe it is just riches that choke it out. And maybe they put their career or their job opportunities ahead of the Lord. This was the story of the rich young ruler. We're not going to turn to that passage. But this rich young ruler comes and seems to be eager to follow Jesus until Jesus tells him what? You have to give everything, give up everything that you own in order to be my disciple. And Jesus knew what was in his heart and, and what was the response of this young man, he would not follow Jesus. Maybe it isn't riches. Maybe it's your, your family. Yes, yes. Yeah, you would say God is important. Right? I think God is super important. The church is important, but they're not as important as my family. And my commitment to my family comes first. Maybe it isn't either of those things. Maybe it's not riches or, or, or pleasure or family. Maybe it is simply the worries of, of life. That is one of the things mentioned in verse 14. The circumstances of your life may be very difficult. Maybe your emotions are a, a wreck. You are tired. And maybe that leads you to, to really, for the only thing that you actually think about, to be the, the worries of your life. And the worries of this life consume your thoughts. They dictate your behavior. You think little of God and much of the problems of your life. Your worries and concerns keep you from the Bible, they keep you from church, they keep you from prayer. And you spend a lot of time worrying about your problems and little time praying about them. Maybe when you pray, maybe even you do pray, but when you pray it's just a long list of everything that you are worried about and not any expression of faith in God, about His sure promises, about His character. And so eventually your faith, which was no true faith at all, is choked out. And that brings us to the final soil, the good soil that we see in verse 15. But the seed in the good ground 
These are the ones who, having heard the word with an honest and good heart, hold on to it by enduring, produce fruit. This is the, the good soil, the good heart. This is true faith. And I want you to notice what what characterizes true faith. We we see two things mentioned in this verse, two things that characterize true faith. One, that true faith produces fruit. It produces good works. As many have said before me, this phrase is not unique to me by any means, it's that we are saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. True faith produces good works. It is accompanied by good works. The true faith obeys. So first, true faith produces fruit, but but second, true faith endures. You should notice that the two of the three of the bad soils Jesus mentioned, two of those three soils that we just looked at, well, these people look like Christians for a time, But eventually they fall away. It is not as if they lost their salvation and then they fall away. That they never really knew the Lord in the first place. They're really pictures of nominal Christianity. On the other hand, true faith endures through the trials of life. It remains strong. Does not get choked out or scorched by the sun. It looks like these disciples and these women who are faithful and following Jesus from town to town giving them themselves and their finances to support the ministry of Jesus. So look, you can find many people, or at least I know I can from where I am from, you can find many people say something like, yes, yes, I know I'm really not living a Christian. I'm really not living like a Christian. I know my life does not look like what it should be, but, you know, I I prayed a prayer a long time ago. I kind of grew up in the church, so I know I am a Christian. Or maybe you've heard this phrase, that guy is just a backslider. I don't know if that's a common phrase, I know that phrase, but this term, a backslidden Christian, that person's just a backslider. Which is really code for that person has not lived like a Christian for years. But they come to our church, or maybe they're a member of my family, so you know what, they must be fine, right? To go back to our, our opening discussion of nominal Christianity, You're not automatically a Christian just because you come to church. You're not automatically a Christian just because you were baptized at one point in your life or or walked down an aisle or prayed a prayer. It's not as if those things are bad. Those things are not bad. They may truly be evidences that you are a Christian. But true faith is faith that endures and produces fruit. A true faith is a gift of God as he regenerates our hearts and gives us new life. True Christians look like Christians before, during, and after the trials of life. True faith listens to the Word of God. It obeys the Word of God, and true faith endures. Uh, so, so really, this, this picture of nominal Christianity is near and dear to my own heart. It's really my, my own story. I was one of those kids who was baptized when I think I was eight years old. And uh, that was all well and fine, except for the fact that I wasn't really a Christian. Uh, I started to have doubts in my faith when I was uh, a teenager. But what I was told and what I was taught is, really, don't worry about those doubts. Because you remember there was that, that, that day five, six years ago when you, when you were baptized. So you're fine. But that was bad advice. 
It was well-intentioned advice, but it was advice that did not understand Jesus' teaching here in this parable. It would be another eight, nine years before the Lord truly saved me and regenerated my heart. But the advice that I should have received from those I shared the doubts about my faith with are, oh, Jesse, thank you for sharing your doubts. But this is what true faith looks like. This is the gospel. Is this the message you believe in? Have you seen the Lord transform your heart in, in these ways? Let's talk about these things. Let's meet and discuss God's word. And let's see what happens in your life over time. This true faith produces good works and true faith endures. This is why churches should have intentional and deliberate membership processes. It's why churches should not be in a rush to baptize someone as, as quickly as is possible. It should take time to get to know people, to ask about their walk with the Lord, to do their best to discern whether a person's profession of faith is genuine, to see if they've endured the trials of life. It's why healthy churches should practice church discipline. Because over time, there will be those who, who look like Christians, who may have even joined the church, but eventually fall away. Over time, it will be revealed that their hearts were actually rocky soil, or full of weeds. The true faith endures, and, and true faith produces fruit. Even as I, I say that, I, I don't want to, to imply that there is no hope for the people in these first three groups. It is God who gives understanding. It is God who changes hearts. It is God who produces the good soil of our heart. He can take a hard heart, a stony heart, a heart filled with reeds ready to choke out the gospel and produce good soil. He can take someone who has spent years and years of rejecting the message of the gospel and in a moment transform their hearts and give them a heart that is ready to receive and hear the good news. If you are a, a Christian, God once did this for you. This is it's not something that you did. If you are a Christian, it is not because you did something to make yourself receptive to God's word. It is because God transformed your heart and he gave you new life. He gave you ears to listen. And these, these verses, Jesus' Jesus teaching here, it teaches one of the hardest things in the Bible to fully understand. That God is fully sovereign, that he is fully in control. That he alone can, can save, that he alone can produce good soil. He alone can give us ears to hear the gospel. Yet at the same time, all people are fully responsible. Just like the nation of Israel was that, that Isaiah preached to. All people are fully responsible for whether they listen and respond to God's word. And God will judge whether you listen, obey, and endure. You must listen. You must plead with the Lord to give you ears to listen by His grace. And that brings us to the, the fourth and final point of, of the sermon, the one that will be the shortest, which is the, the application of the parable. So look with me at verse 16. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a basket or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a lampstand so that those who come in may see its light. For nothing is concealed that won't be revealed, and nothing hidden that won't be made known and brought to light. Therefore, take care how you listen, for whoever has, more will be given to him. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has will be taken away from him. Then his mother and brothers came to him, but they could not meet with him because of the crowd. 
He was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. But he replied to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear and do the word of God. In light of the parable that Jesus had just told and this explanation that he gives, he gives three things that help uh, apply the parable or maybe help give a fuller understanding of the parable. And so the first we see in verse 16 that it is your job as Christians to give light to others. If you are a Christian, you have been given the secrets of the kingdom of God. You know the truth of salvation that comes in Christ alone. And you are to share it with others. Yes, your good works give evidence of your faith, but I think given the context, talking about this parable of the seed and the sower, you are primarily to do this by sharing the words of the gospel. Yes, it is, it is God who saves, but he works by his spirit as the gospel is proclaimed. And Christian, you have, have not been given the, the light of the gospel to hide it or to cover it up, but to, to share it. We see in verse 17 that one day God's kingdom will be fully revealed. This will be when Jesus returns. But until then, even though the truths of the kingdom of God will remain hidden for many, Christians are to share it. The second thing we see from these last few verses, we see in verse 18, that you are to take care how you listen. You are to take care how you listen. It goes back to my earlier question of what is your attitude towards God's word? As one, as one writer put it, the person who has listened carefully to God's word will understand it even more clearly. But the person who does not pay heed, the person who does not pay heed to how he or she hears God's word will lose even that which they know. Now that is the, the long way of saying that God grants wisdom and understanding to those who ask. God grants wisdom and understanding to those who desire it. Those, God grants wisdom and understanding to those who want, like the disciples, to understand God's word. So take care how you listen. And thirdly and finally, we see in verses 19 through 21, Jesus' mother and brothers come and they, they want to meet with Jesus, evidently, but they're unable to reach him. And when Jesus hears about this, he, he says, My mother and my brothers are those who hear and do the word of God. And Jesus is not being rude to his family here. He's, he's teaching something. He's summarizing that which he has just taught in this parable. He's teaching that belonging to the family of God is, is not a matter of birth. It's not a matter of the place or the region that you come from. It is a matter of repentance and faith. It comes by hearing the word of God, accepting it by faith, and obeying it. John 1, 12-13 But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be the children of God to those who believe in his name who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. My friends, to, to receive Jesus, to believe in his name, means that you recognize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. It means you believe that Jesus came to this earth and lived the perfect life of obedience to the Father that you could not live and died a sacrificial death on the cross to pay for your sins. The death that you deserve to die. And it means that you believe Jesus has risen again, defeating sin and death. 
It is to believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to become a child of God is not by where you're born, not even whether you've attended church all your life, but it is through faith in him. Friends, you are not a Christian because of the family you were born into. You are not a Christian because of the area you are from. You are not a Christian just because you go to church. The only way to become a Christian is to repent of your sins and to believe in the one who died that you might live. And that is true faith. True faith is, is hearing God's word. It is obeying the word of God. True faith produces fruit. And true faith endures. Let's pray.